Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 7th, 2018. This is episode 2213 of the Survival Podcast. 2213 is a Monday, so we have a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails. Jack at the com is the email address. Jack at the Survival Podcast. Dot com, again, is my email address. That's a actual email address for me. It's not a special secret one or something like that that, that everybody – there's no secret special one other people have. Like my best friends have the same email address I give to you. It all goes to one place. I do try to read every email. I can't respond to them all. Uh, but I try to screen them, at least the ones that are for the show. The way you can help me do that and get a better chance of being on the air, put TSPC in the subject line. Again, TSPC in the subject line. And uh, then article for Jack or comment for Jack, question for Jack, something like that. And then to help me help you, try to give me your point or your thought in one or two sentences. And then if there's a bunch of details, that's fine. Give me all the detail you want, but hit the return key a couple times before you do that. That will help me quickly screen emails and know whether or not I can help you, whether or not I should give you a direct response versus be on the show, that type of thing. Because I do try to help people, even folks that don't get on the show, with at least a word of advice, a link, uh, maybe a prior episode, something like that. All right, so what do we got today? Today we have why people should stop acting like idiots in regard to the Boy Scouts Becoming the Boy and Girl Scouts, because that's not what's really happening. I'll tell you what's really happening, and that way, at least if you're upset, you can be upset about fact instead of some nonsense the TV's telling you. Uh, how worthless has Venezuela's currency become? Wait till you hear this. I think it'll kind of blow you away. Like, really? That bad? Yeah. Uh, why I compost in bins if, instead of directly putting waste into garden beds? How to mark water lines when you bury them so that you can know where they are when you do things in the future? Uh, we have a labor shortage in our country right now, and what this solution is will kind of blow your mind, I think, when you hear what some cities are doing over a labor shortage. Uh, I have a question on starting with a one-quarter acre blank slate. I have a question on indoor versus outdoor aquaponics. I have a question on how my opinion of high-point guns may have changed over the years. And when to do aquatics versus aquaponics versus, you know, so when really you're better off doing... You know, an aquatic solution, aquaculture versus aquaponics. Uh, we'll get to all that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is my choice for everything and anything herbal. If I'm looking for it, I know that they'll have it. If it's not growing in my own backyard and I need it, I go there to get it. Uh, that includes individual whole herbs, and it includes uh, herbal preparations. They're a great company with real people that really care about you. If you pick up the phone, give them a call and talk to them. They'll help you out. Somebody in Utah will answer your phone, not someone in, like, let's say, New Delhi or something like that. Uh, they really are an outstanding company. Been with us a very long time and offer a discount uh, to all members of MSB. You can learn about in the benefits section of your MSB if you are a member. Next up today, Ready Made Resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says right there in their name. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. Also, a company's been with us a very, very long time. Uh, I'm telling you, man, the, the, the length of sponsorship here at TSP is, is pretty impressive, honestly. For the podcasting world, it's kind of almost unheard of. And Ready Made Resources has been like with us so long. I think they were the third company that we took on as a sponsor. And we've been doing this show almost 10 years now. Uh, so, you know, 
these sponsors, guys, whether it's ready-made ready resources or anybody, do consider them when you're making buying decisions because they've supported us for a very long time. Ready-made resources does have everything you could need for your prepping. Everything ready-made, ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. From the practical to the tactical to guns and gardens and everything between, uh, you'll find it you know where at readymaderesources.com. Before we get at your feedback today, let's uh, take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 125. The year 125, the Pantheon, contributed by David Verne. Hadrian arrives back in Rome after his multi-year tour of the empire, and many of the building projects he commissioned before he left are finished. One of them is a Pantheon, a rebuild of a temple built during the reign of Augustus. The temple was built with concrete dome, 142 feet in diameter, and 2,000 years later, it's still the largest unreinforced concrete dome. I, I, I actually stand in awe at some of the accomplishments of Rome. Really, when you think about it, this is the year 125 AD, and they've completed a structure that to this day is the largest concrete dome, unreinforced concrete dome in existence. And it's still there. It's still standing. Um, I think sometimes we don't have enough appreciation for the capabilities of the, those that came before us. And I'm talking about way thousands of years before us here. We think of them as being very primitive people. Let me tell you something. If you can build a 142-foot diameter concrete dome that lasts 2,000 years with no, no, no petroleum, you know, no gasoline-powered machines... You, you're not primitive. You're really not. That's a very sophisticated level of engineering. And uh, it just really does give you a bit of uh, humility when you think about some of the things that they did back then. We still really don't know exactly how they did it. We still can't make concrete as good as the Romans did. It's kind of a secret loss to history. Something else we've learned in the history segment. With that, let's go ahead and get into things today. Um, I put out an article today that's already upset some people. I know that's shocking and surprising. Uh, I think it's actually opened up a hell of a lot more eyes than it's pissed people off, though. Uh, and that was the real point here, is to, uh, to get people to actually judge something on the facts and logic around it versus the hype that's coming off TV. So recently, Boy Scouts of America made an announcement that it's going to change the name Boy Scouts to Scouts BSA and let girls be part of Boy Scouts. There's some stuff right there that I think most people aren't even aware of. So Boy Scouts of America is not the organization you join when you are a Boy Scout. You join the Boy Scouts, which is a group underneath the National Organization of Boy Scouts of America. In that group is not just the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts. There's a two of six. There's also a group called the Venturers. There's the Explorers. There's the Sea Scouts. And there's the STEM Scouts, right? Now, this organization has existed with most of these organizations in it for a very long time. The newest one, obviously, is a more academic engineering type one. That's the STEM Scouts. I'm not sure how they've been, long they've been around. But Venturers and Explorers have been around for a very, very long time. And Sea Scouts has been around not as long, but a long time. The Venturers, the Explorers, the Sea Scouts, and the STEM Scouts are all co-ed organizations, and they've always been co-ed organizations, and boys and girls do things together in them. When they go do something, 
boys and girls in the same place at the same time. In the instance of the explorers, that has been the case for over 50 years. Okay? The Boy Scouts have always been limited to boys only 11 to 17 years of age. The Cub Scouts have always been limited to boys only, only K through 5th grade. Now, when I first heard about this, I was opposed to it because I didn't have all the facts. And then I noticed something. Whenever I saw something posted about it and commented and somebody said, Jack, you're wrong, that somebody almost inevitably was saying things like, our, our girls are excited about it, and we have our boys in the scouts now. And as I started to recognize a pattern, and that was most of the people who were outspoken in support of this were involved with scouts. Okay? I need to look deeper at this because that says something to me. And most of the people that were most irate about it, if anybody asked them, were not involved with scouts. There was a few exceptions, but in general, this pattern held. So I said, well, maybe I should find out what's going on here, because I think saying to the Boy Scouts, you must accept girls in your troops, is a big mistake. So I looked into it, and this is the new plan. Under the new plan, the Cub Scouts will still be K through 5th grade, and boys and girls are both conjoined, in single-gender dens. So basically what they're saying is we're creating a program for girls within Cub Scouts. They have their own den, you know, den mothers. They have their own dens. They do their own thing. They go to their own events, what have you. So the boys and girls, Cub Scouts, not together. Boys in, in, in Boy Scouts has been 11- to 17-year-old boys only. It is now going to be 11- to 17-years-old boys and girls in single-gender troops. So you know all the memes of like the little girls saying, I had a great time camping and now I'm going to have a baby, right? Stuff like that. Not going to happen. Not going to happen because, well, there's a lot of reasons that's a stupid meme, isn't it? I mean, we could point out that generally the morals taught to kids within the scouts are higher than the general population and that the, the adult supervision of scouting activities is higher than most activities that are co-ed right now, but they're not doing that. You got it? They're not doing that. They have their own thing. People, why can't they just make the Girl Scouts better? Understand this. The Girl Scouts and the Boy Scouts are not related at all to each other. Remember I said Boy Scouts of America has those six organizations? Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, Venturers, Explorers, Sea Scouts, and STEM Scouts. You notice I didn't say Girl Scouts. They're not in there. They're not in there. So what this is actually doing is saying, hey, if girls want to do the Boy Scout type stuff... We'll just basically call it scouts. You can follow the program, you can do the program, but you do it as a group of girls. So if you're like, well, boys should have something to themselves, well, they still do. If you're really going to get upset that girls can have the same name about something, I don't think you're actually arguing the core of, of the thing. And there's more to it than that, but this is, this is not what people are getting the impression of on TV. When you got some idiot rube like Mike Huckabee saying, there's a difference between the sexes and we need to acknowledge that. And this is one more example. This is nothing at all that Boy Scouts do that in any way is something that girls should be prohibited from doing. Now, I am opposed to creating a co-ed organization out of the existing Boy Scouts at the troop level. I think that's a mistake. I do think it's a good thing that boys have a place that they can go where it's just for them. And they don't have to be hamstrung by what girls want. I think that's great. I really do. Now, in the end, though, if, if Boy Scouts of America decides to even change that, I don't get to say anything about it. 
I'm not the one volunteering my time and my money and my labor to work for them. And this is the core. Boy Scouts is made up, or Scouts is made up of tens of thousands of adults and hundreds of thousands of youth. And the adults, 98% or more of them, don't get paid a dime. They are not compelled to do it. They do it because they want to. If Scouts goes off the reservation enough, those people will stop doing it. They can't be made to do it. We're not talking about like, you know, little Tammy wants to be in Scouts and the Scoutmaster that's, that's running the mail troop says no, so the police show up and make him take her in. You're not talking about somebody losing a job. It's not a job. It's a voluntary, free thing that people do because they believe in it. So it is a private organization making an internal decision with a tremendous amount of feedback from their own people, apparently. And again, I've heard from many people who are involved with scouts who, who are fine with this. And I think most of them are fine with this because of the separate troops and separate dens. And I've heard from people say, if they go beyond that, I will hang up my shirt and I will walk away. And most of the objections that I've heard, once I point that out, stem from two places. One is the slippery slope argument. The slippery slope argument is, in general, a fallacy. Slippery slope is a recognized fallacy. If A occurs, it is inevitable that Z will occur, with no supporting evidence linking them up. But what they're saying is, well, you know, if you do this, then the next thing you're going to have is boys and girls in the same troops. Okay, well, then we address that then. You don't not do something that makes sense that a private organization wants to do that its members largely support because of the possibility that something else might happen later that really isn't connected to this at all. So that, that, that doesn't make any sense, to me anyway. And then the other one is, but why don't the Girl Scouts get any flag for not letting boys in? You know, that is so typical of what we do today. That when you hear something that's logical and reasonable, but you don't like it, you say, well, then why don't they have to do it? Why is it only the boys that have to give something up? Okay, what are the boys giving up here? And I'll tell you what the real problem is. When you start drilling down with people, especially people that have been involved with scouts that are upset about this, and you get to the heart of the matter, you start seeing what the real problem is. The organization's dying. Scouting is dying. As an, BSA is dying as an organization. Its numbers are dwindling and dwindling fast, and they have been. And it's from a lot of stupid shit that they've done, like... Scouts can't shoot each other with water guns because that's not kind, and a scout is always kind, and other nonsense like that. That's part of it. But I'll tell you what the bigger part of it is, and I've talked about this before, and it's not like I defend everything BSA does. I've been 99% I've been critical of them if you go back and look at my history with it. It is because kids don't want to be in scouts in general. And you'll say, well, if kids didn't want to be in the Scouts, the girls wouldn't want to be in the Scouts. No, I'm telling you, like as a percentage of kids, like if you went back 50 years ago and said, you know, you took a thousand kids and said, how many of you like the idea of maybe being in Boy Scouts? You'd get a lot more hands that would go up than you would get today if you asked a thousand kids the same question. And it's not just because they're millennials and they don't know how to do anything. It's because it's not cool. I mean, honest to God, do you think the average 10th grader would go to school in a Boy Scout uniform even if he was a scout? And if he did, do you think he wouldn't get screwed with? I mean, the uniforms look dorky. I'm sorry. I know I just offended some of you that are so deeply ingrained in this, but they do. They're not cool. 
Scouts is not considered cool. So kids don't want to be part of it because it's not cool. Now, I actually think it is cool in some ways. And what it teaches kids and what if they actually follow the program, if you have good guidance and good leadership, I think that that part is cool. I'm talking about the image. The image isn't cool. So your, the numbers are going down. And I think that this move by, by BSA is to try to get more people in the door to keep it running. And I don't think that it'll work. I really don't. But I think they have every right to try, especially with the proposed solution. But the other side of this is there's not enough men stepping up into the role and doing the job of running troops. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. One, look at our divorce rate. It's very difficult for a single father paying child support to go do this. So if you got a dad that's going to do this, he probably has you know, he's a dad. He's got kids. There's not a lot of guys that don't have kids that go do this. Now, some do, and they're generally you know, kids that went all the way to Eagle, and they want to still be involved. So they choose to then participate as an adult. Other than that, I would say the majority of men that get involved uh, in this get involved in scouting because their sons are Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts, and someone has to do it. And usually it's not like, gee, I want to go do this. That does happen. I know people who have done it. But in general, it's like they, the kids go to go to scouting and they realize there's not enough men. So the guy's like, oh, I'll do it. I didn't really want to. And I did that quite a bit for my son because he was in Cub Scouts. I traveled a lot. I could not commit to being a regular part of the organization. But there were many times I went as a chaperone on events because they didn't have two men to go. And those are your two problems. And that, that might be the cause of this decision, but it is not something you judge this decision based on. You judge this decision if you're going to say that, you know, boys should have something to themselves and we shouldn't push this, then you got to judge it on the facts. And the facts are the male troops are not affected by this. They could be. And then we should have that discussion if that happens. And, and, and that's why I think people just need to calm the hell down about this. Um, and, you know, when I wrote this article, I'm going to read to you the PS that I put in the bottom of this article. I'm sure some of my regular listeners and readers are thinking, why isn't Jack taking his own advice and simply ignoring stuff that doesn't affect the temperature of the water in his pool? To a degree, you are right, but in this case, not really. Here's why. First, due to my platform and reach, this issue is in my circle of influence. Well, I'm sure I'll get a lot of flack here. I do know this will actually change a lot of opinions simply by showing the real facts versus the mythology around the issue. Next, my job is chiefly an educational one, and one thing I'm big on is the use of logic and reason. The objections here are so divorced from logic and reason, and that made this a unique teaching opportunity. Usually, hot-button issues are ideological, but here, many of the objections, objections exist solely from lacking facts. I think most reasonable people, no matter their political leanings, would be fine with this if they simply had the facts about it. That said, for those that are still upset about it, those asking why I would even bother to have a point, uh, those, that, those that are asking why I even have a point here, oh, no, sorry, let me read that again. That said, for those still upset about it, those asking why I would even bother here have a point. Put it in your journal and get with me in about eight weeks' time. And, of course, that was the article that I wrote about are you being an easily led idiot? And that if you journal the things that you think are important, Each day, you write them down and then turn the page and cover it up. 
and don't look at it again and just write down the next day and write down the next day. Keep doing that. About eight weeks later, if you go back to page one and start reading that stuff, you'll realize how pointless most of the, the outrage, the feigned outrage is here. And, and again, what I've noticed, and again, I've, I've met one or two people uh, that have a history with scouts that are actually opposed to this. The majority of people involved or that have been involved that are informed uh, with the information I just gave you seem quite supportive of it. And the biggest outrage seems to come from people that have no connection to the organization whatsoever. And this is how I honestly, honest to God feel about this. If you are not in scouts, if you are not a scout, if you're not donating your time, effort, and money, then what Boy Scouts does is none of your business. And I would put myself in that category too. You know, even though I do have a past connection, I was a scout. Once a scout, always a scout, right? And uh, and I did get involved with my son's my son's uh, dad. But having that been 20 years ago now, ish, yes, I guess it is 20 years ago. Um, and having not given my time, talent, money, or energy to Boy Scouts, what the Boy Scouts do is their business. This isn't a taxpayer-funded organization. They should do whatever they want, including if it's wrong, including if it's stupid, as long as it's not illegal or harmful. They should do whatever they want, and then the market should judge them. If there really is a market for an organization that is 100% male and hardcore like Scouts was, let's say, in 1935, if that market exists, that service will be there. It will show up. I don't think the market exists anymore. I don't think this is what young men want. I think if you want to see Scouts... You know, fulfill what a lot of people think that it should, that someone needs to start from scratch and come up with a new idea. I really do. But, you know, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either. I even, con you know, had the concept of something called Sovereign Scouts, which was self-led and self-directed. And what I realized as I looked at this, there's not enough interest. There needs to be a complete rebranding, a complete re-imaging of this if it's going to be something that kids want to be involved with at a large enough level to make it what people actually want it to be. And, man, I I just don't think it, it's got it right now. It, it suffers from a major image and branding problem. And, you know, I think part of that is it's 2018. It's 2018. And the people that run the scouting organizations haven't quite figured out how to make an image that fits 2018 while sticking to the principles and the code of scouting. And the people that do the work are great people. Don't think I'm putting you down, um, but I think your national organizations have made some dumb decisions. I'm not even saying I agree wholly with this decision, but I'm not upset by it. And what I am upset by is the misinformation and mischaracterization of what's actually going on. And once again, the people of this country showing how easily led they are. This next one comes to me from John, and man, you know, we've all heard the stories of back in the uh, Weimar Republic of Germany, a guy using like a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a single sack of potatoes. Uh, man, this is even worse. Uh, this is in Time Magazine. Why Venezuelan migrants are making handbags out of worthless banknotes. Um, in the dusty Colombian town of Macau, Four men and women huddle along a shady path of concrete and form an assembly line. One unpacks rubber-banded heaps of banknotes. The next person folds each bill in half. Another performs a few more folds. Finally, the last one in line makes a braid and turns the finished product into a handbag. The process takes about eight hours, and each bag is made up of 500 banknotes 
worth less than 50 cents in total, but they retail for $12. I'd be so hungry if it weren't for these bags, said Orlando Silva, a young man in charge of the business, who asked time to use a pseudonym because he fears his sa for his safety. In Ju January 2017, Silva showed up on the streets of Macau, a northern Colombian town just seven miles from the Venezuelan border, border with no passport, no money, and no place to sleep. Like so many other Venezuelans fueling their country's economic crisis, the 26-year-old spent months broke and hungry roaming northern Colombia's mesquite-cloaked region of Garahaya. I don't know how to say that. And then after a year after he arrived, Silva finally found an opportunity that would make him some cash, the handbag-making business. Except instead of using soft leather or fine silk threads, he turned to a different material, writing together worthless banknotes of bolivars, Venezuela's failed currency, to create purses, handbags, and wallets. Silva now earns just about enough money to eat. He uses two or three denominations for each bag. The 500 banknotes are usually worth between 25,000 and 50,000 bolivars, which today amounts to about 10 to 20 cents. His customers come from Bogota, Medellin, and other parts of the country to Macau, a town notorious for its flood of cheap contraband goods. When requesting anonymity, Silva and others claim Venezuela's National Guard roams Macau looking for dissidents. He also worries that his new business could affect his chance of returning to Venezuela. Uh, you can read the rest if you want. I have a, a link in the notes. It goes on to talk about how bad things really are. Um, I don't have a lot to add to this other than I, I, I kind of want to make a connection here to all things monetary and the continuing understanding of what I've been trying to say for years. Money is valued by the confidence in it and its ability to be exchanged for goods and services. That's where money actually derives its value. And if that confidence goes away, it doesn't matter that it, the money was printed by a nation state. And if you think about how that relates to cryptocurrency, people say, well, cryptocurrency is just made up out of thin air. This is what I'm trying to say. All currency is made up out of thin air. What about gold? Well, even gold. How are we going to value gold? How do we value gold? Do we, do, do we say that an ounce of gold you know, is worth 20 ounces of silver? Is that how we value gold? How do we value gold? Come on, we value gold in dollars. And if you exchange gold with somebody, they're going to exchange it based on its value in dollars, aren't they? So aren't you really exchanging dollars? Because that's what the denomination that's dominant in our minds. So I have an ounce of gold. I don't know, worth $1,400, $1,200, whatever you know, gold's going for today. And you have a car. And I say, well, I'll give you an ounce of gold for the car because this is real money. You and if it's a used car worth about ten grand, you're going to take, you know, ten thousand dollars worth of hundred dollar U.S. bills before you take that ounce of gold because you're going to value that ounce of gold in dollars. You may or may not be willing to accept gold if I have enough gold to be worth ten thousand dollars, but that's how you're going to make the judgment. So all of these means of exchange are invented based on supply and demand and what people are willing to accept at any given time. And any currency, any currency from anywhere can become worthless at any time if people simply decide they're no longer willing to accept it. And you can't mandate it. You, I mean, you can, but it doesn't work. The inflation rate in Venezuela is about 10,000% a year right now. And it's just a lesson there that what doesn't go away is the skill set and the knowledge. 
These people are making enough money to survive using worthless money because they've created a value-added product out of it. And it kind of looks kind of cool. I mean, if I were down there, you know, hanging out, bumming around, drinking some tropical drinks and enjoying myself, you know, in, in, in Colombia as a tourist, and I saw one of these for 12 bucks, I'd probably buy it. I might buy a couple of them. They might do pretty good that day. And the other thing that struck me, it's taking four people eight hours to make $12 and they're able to live on it. And that shows relative currency strength and other things like that. Like, see, the value of their labor still has a significant value uh, if applied correctly. It, it, it's kind of a crazy thing that humanity has actually deluded itself to believing that something's worth something because the right picture or seal or stamp or numbers on it. But we need it, right? That's that's the odd thing. It is kind of a delusion, but it's for our society to function at our level of development as beings right now. We need it. How else do you account for exchange? You, you, and the people are like, well, we have a resource-based economy. Well, you're too many Star Trek novels, man. You know, if we we invent the replicator that's in Star Trek and stuff like that. Then yeah, maybe we can talk about some stuff more like that. But in the end, when you need things done, and not all of them are things people want to do, the way they're going to get done is by people being willing to work for them because they can get something out of it, and you need a means of exchange. Direct barter has major limitations, which is why monetary systems exist. Check out the rest of this article. It's kind of mind-blowing. And uh, we'll go to another one. Next up, a question from Eric in Michigan. Eric says, hey, Jack, can you please explain why you use bins for your chicken compost system instead of just putting food scraps and plant material on the ground? I live in Michigan 6A, have free-range chickens. I throw all my scraps on the floor of their coop and contact with the bedding. Almost all the food disappears every so often. I pull all the bedding out and pile it up. I'd like to know why you use bins instead of putting your scraps right on the ground. Love the show, Eric. Well, Eric, what you're doing, there's nothing wrong with. And you're doing it because you're running what we call a deep litter system where you know you're going to pull all that straw out and everything else that's been integrated with it uh, along with the manure and compost it. That's, that is your plan. And your plan is a good plan, and it makes sense, and your chickens are in a coop. So when they go in there, uh, that stuff's all pretty well contained. And uh, you're closing them in at night, letting them out in the morning, that type of thing. So they know that they go to the coop. There's probably a feeder in there or water in there and all their tasty treats that you bring them from the table. So they do their thing. My little four chickens are not in a coop. They are actually in an aviary. And they are not in a deep litter system. Though we do mulch the ground in there for them, they're not in a true deep litter system. They have a dirt floor, not a wood floor coop. So that means that their poop and their all that mulch and all gets all kind of integrated together. And it's not the easiest thing to take a bunch of it out of there. Though we will at some point remove a great deal of it and go use it somewhere. Because it is very fertile, very good material. In fact, right now what we're able to do is we just take a rake and rake some stuff up in a pile, and then take some piles of that and throw it right in our wicking beds uh, at the beginning of the season and add fertility that way if we want to. However, that's really not the best idea because you have different levels. You know, Some of that poop went down there God knows when ago, and some of it went down there five minutes ago. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense. By doing the food into the bins, they go in there and they tear it up and they eat what they want and they leave behind the rest. And we will throw things in there like handfuls of straw at times and stuff like that. So they really get it incorporated. 
and we get a really good concentration of high-quality waste left over. And because it's in the bin, it's somewhat contained. So what happens then is we actually keep it in one place. And then we're able to take it away and compost it, and that way we have really great compost that we know is safe, and we can you know spot apply it to the places that it makes the most sense to apply The plan long-term is for me to eventually move those chickens out of that aviary and go back to 100% quail aviary. When I do that, the chickens will have a coop, and I will probably at that point do exactly what you're doing with the chickens. It will just be easier at that point, honestly, to just throw anything for them into their deep litter and wreck out their deep litter about once a quarter, maybe once, a, once every six months, honestly, is about all you need to do, especially with the small number of chickens that I'll have. I might have to do it once a year, honestly, if we only keep four chickens because it'll probably take that long before it's really got enough you know, nitrogen from manure in, in, incorporated in it to make it actually compost properly. We'll probably have to actually add other greens at that point because four chickens don't do that much. But I have no problem with the way you're doing things. Um, however, the, the bin method works really good, and we may actually stick to that and go with deeper bins. I use the concrete trays because we have them, and because it's you know kind of a confined, limited area. When they move, I may you know construct something a little bit larger for them, and uh, that way we can you know bring in we you know we cut the grass. You get a whole bunch of green right there. We have straw from them. We can kind of make them a mix and let them process it down to a certain level and then cover that one and start another one and start producing more compost. And that's the other thing. I think you can make more compost this way because you're only going to put so much into that coop. So if it's just table scraps and all, what you're doing is cool. But if you're starting to bring in larger amounts of organic matter, those chickens do a great job of processing and breaking it down into smaller components And you really want to contain that so you have the better control of it. So that's why we do that. Next up, I have a question from Adam in Northern California. Need ideas to help me remember where I bury water lines. It may sound funny, but I have trouble remembering exactly where I ran lines several years later. That doesn't sound funny to me. I can't remember what I did five minutes ago sometimes. All right. Um, I have an idea where they are, but I don't want to break one by accident when I put in a fence post or dig another trench. The only idea I have so far is to bury some metal cable about one inch under the soil so I can use a metal detector later to locate it. Any other ideas? Thanks. Adam in NorCal. Okay, so a couple of things. Number one, I would suggest that people seriously consider uh, burying wire with their pipes. I, I did not do it. I wish I did. Um, that is, you know, conductor wire for running solenoids so that you can automate things later. Because there's no easier time to bury that wire than when you put that pipe in. So if you did that, then you'd have a metal wire there that you could use. If you're not going to do that, then something like you know aluminum fencing wire is not going to rust or, or corrode in the ground. It's going to last for a very, very long time. So And it's pretty cheap because it's made to be used in large amounts. It comes on a reel. I would put that in with your pipe if you want a locator ability with it. How well will that work with a metal detector? I have to confess I have no earthly idea. I've never done any prospecting with a metal detector in my life. I don't know how well they work on something like a long strand of wire. I would expect that they would work pretty good. But if they don't, it doesn't matter. You can go any type of you know tool rental place and rent a utility locator. And all you want to do then is when you... Um, You know, when you stub your pipe up, stub some of that wire up, maybe wrap it around the pipe, put some tape on it to protect it, and then that way you have that wire there. And you'd be able to then clip 
the, the, the signaling side of the utility locator onto it and locate that wire perfectly. If you had run you know, a wire capable of actuating solenoids so that you could automate in the future, um, then you could just get onto the copper of that and you could do the same thing. So that's how I would do it. The poor man's solution would be what they often do with water pipe or gas lines where they're supposed to do this. They're supposed to run locator wire, but they often don't. Um, they will a lot of times if there's nothing else in the way in the ground and there is a nice straight curb, uh, the gas company or the water company say, we have uh, the, 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 the location three feet off of that curb. And then they'll place that as best the installer can, and you really can't trust them, but three feet off that curve all the way down the road. If you have a wall or a building or something like that, and you mark your, you know, your trenches based on being a distance from something permanent uh, and try to maintain that and then make notes about it, because you're not necessarily going to remember if it was three feet or 15 feet off that building over there, uh, that will be quite useful to you as well. Additionally... Get a probe. Uh, you can buy a basically nylon probe. When you start sticking stuff in the ground looking for things, metal is probably not a good idea. And uh, you can kind of probe around an area and find your pipes that way. And then just use some basic logic. Generally, a pipe runs from somewhere to somewhere else. And if you stand where that pipe begins and look to where it ends, and you think, where would I dig that trench today? It's probably pretty close. And then in the end, it's PVC pipe. Make sure you have the stuff to fix it. And then when you do break one, because you will, fix it. Um, <laughs> I'm being absolutely dead serious there. Um, it does happen. I, I'm relocating a pipe right now. We didn't break it, but I kind of knew it was there. And, you know, I dug it up as carefully as I could, as hard as the ground was, managed to locate it. And I had to actually cut it and relocate it because it's in the way of something that I'm trying to build right now. Um, but... That's a big case for when you're running pipe, putting cutoff valves. Just straight valves, slip straight valves, glue them in, put them in all over the place. I mean, really, like, as many as you, like, if you think you might want to put a cutoff valve in, put it in. You know, they do raise the cost of your installation. They're going to be between 6 and $12, depending on how big the pipe is. But I can't tell you how valuable they are. Especially when something gets broke because the dog jumped on it, you hit it with a shovel, the person you told to be careful with the pick wasn't, uh, it froze, whatever. Being able to shut off just that zone instead of everything. So a lot of times you'll have a, a, a situation where you come and you go, you put a hose bib in and then you pass through to another location where you have another hose bib. So you usually do a T in the ground and you come up and uh, just off that T. And that makes sense. But what actually makes, in my opinion, more sense, at least at some locations along the way, come up from a 90 and then across from another 90 and put your T in for your hose bib. And on the outflow side, when you come back down into the ground, put a cutoff valve in there. So it looks kind of like a U with a hose bib on top of an upside-down U coming up out of the ground, right? And then that way... If we need to work on it past there, I can just shut it off there, and I still have water to the rest of the property. And pretty much, my again, my rule is if I even think it might be a good idea, I spend you know the, the, the five to twelve bucks for that extra part. And every time you use it, you'll be like, "I was well spent money. That really was." So 
Those are my suggestions on that. I want you to think about, uh, as we go into this next one, how everybody says it's so hard to find a job and what have you. This is from John in Moore Park. He says uh, uh, this is a new incentives that cities are offering to get people to move there. It's a story in the Wall Street Journal. It's called How Bad is the Labor Shortage? Cities Will Pay You to Move There. Hamilton, Ohio. Jobs at the paper mills and safe manufacturers on the stretch of Great Miami River mostly dried up by the early 2000s, leaving behind closed factories and abandoned downtown. Today, a spruced-up waterfront, loft apartments, and help-wanted signs give the appearance of economic renewal. All that's missing are workers, and that has prompted a novel experiment. Relocate to Hamilton, and the city promises $5,000 to help pay student loans. Pack up for Grant County, Indiana, and claim $5,000 toward buying a home. Settle in North Platte, Nebraska, and the Chamber of Commerce will hold a ceremony in your honor to present even a bigger check. The idea has spread uh, where a strong economy, an aging population, and an exodus of younger workers have triggered, triggered several labor shortages, often places with very low unemployment rates and higher than average wage growth. That's why small towns across America, instead of offering incentives to employers such as Amazon.com, are giving it to workers one by one. Mike Algren, an economist at the University of South Dakota, calls the financial incentives, quote, a modern-day homestead act, end quote, referring to the 1862 law offering public land to settlers willing to move west. A similar deal now stands in Marin, Iowa, where free parcels are available to people who move there. Some of the relocation programs show promise, but this is a tall order. The pool of opportunity and amenities in large cities is hard to resist. The mere fact that they're doing what they're doing highlights the headwinds they're facing, said Ingrino Moriti, an economist at the University of California, Berkeley. There is no one in San Francisco trying to pay people to move here. Uh, you, you may be trying to pay them not to leave, though, if the San Francisco keeps their shit up. The 2007-09 recession spurred a movement of young people to big cities, particularly those in rural America. The number of people in prime working years, 25 to 54, grew almost 6% in large metropolitan areas since 2008. It fell in towns and rural areas and stagnated in smaller cities and suburbs. Um, so you can read the rest if you want. It's a pretty long article, but um, I think there's a lot more going on here than the article would lead you to believe. So one of the things that I found when I, when I hear how big the numbers are for jobs that are unfilled You look at them and like half of them are jobs no one really wants. You know, working at a convenience store, uh, you know, restaurant work. I'm not putting any of this stuff down. It's just, it's not things that people get really excited about having a job doing and they don't pay very well. The other half, and it, it, it's really not to say, to say this is two halves because this is a, Like, the biggest piece is, right, like, there's there's some jobs outside of what I'm describing right now. I don't think I'm giving 100% coverage here. But the other half of, of, of the big chunk of jobs kind of splits into two types. And the one is highly skilled trades, where schooling is required but college is not. You know, things like being a pipe fitter would be one example electrical work, journeyman electrical work, and things like that. And all different types, welding, fabrication, you know, stuff that's really low-level or mid-level engineering but doesn't require any college or even a college degree to do. All types of stuff like this. And there's not enough, and those are not jobs people necessarily don't want, 
Because when you know you look at them from a pay, benefits, etc., future standpoint, they're pretty good, as good as anything else out there right now. But we don't have the people capable of doing them. The other ones are, and the you know like the other twenty five percent chunks. So we have that other half we're splitting in half here, right? Are jobs that do require college degrees or a very high level of education, but the majority of people coming out of college are not educated for them. You know, they are actual engineering. They're STEM jobs. Uh, a lot of them are kind of in a, a nebulous place in the middle. They're high-level coding jobs that you may or may not, you know, need, want, or have a college degree for. So they're, they're things that you know, they're things that maybe someone could learn from taking a couple boot camps and, and, and getting a few Sam's manuals and working their ass off and getting an entry-level position. But it's hard, and it's you know that type of work is not just. I think this kind of shows the whole problem, too. People think, well, if you go to school and you get a degree in X, then you're qualified to do X. A lot of people can fumble their way through a degree, make it by the skin of their teeth, and still not be very good at it, even if it is good, actable training. Sometimes a college degree really, like, it just is a piece of paper, and you got a degree in marketing, and that doesn't mean you know how to market. But, you know, an engineering degree, you're going to have a fundamental understanding of engineering. You still might not be good at it. I know a, a, a buddy of mine, his ex-wife, went to school for years, busted her ass to get a degree in architecture, and she's designing closets now because she's not a good architect. She just isn't good at it. She also doesn't like it because she's not good at it. She went because she was a daddy issue thing. Daddy was an architect. Granddaddy was an architect. I'm going to be an architect. You're going to be proud of me. By the time she realized how much she hated it, she was so close to completing her degree, she decided it would just be worth completing her degree. She already had so much invested in it. But she's not a good architect. She'll tell you, I'm not a good architect. I suck. I hate this. And, and so we have these positions that do or do not require college degrees, but they require an advanced understanding and a certain level of experience, and the people just aren't there. So when these towns and cities are doing this, I'm wondering if there's any kind of conditions with those. Like, yeah, you don't just get five grand for coming here. You have to be able to actually fill some of these jobs that, that companies are looking for or something. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just a body count thing. I don't know. Um, but it also makes me think about how everything flows in a cycle. So what the cycle we just had was an economic recession driving people out of small towns and uh, you know uh, in rural environments into big cities for new opportunities. And the cities are booming, and the cost of living in the cities is going through the roof. Even traditionally insulated cities like the Dallas-Fort Worth area have seen our real estate prices go through the roof. It's one of the few places where if you have a good income, you know, people that are in their, their mid to late 20s to early 30s that have some experience, they get a decent job, you know, where the, 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 the collectively the, the, the couples making 80 to 100 grand can buy a nice, a damn nice house on that salary. I know that seems like a lot of money to some people, but really, if you are experienced and good at what you do, two people collectively making $80,000 is not a big deal anymore. It really isn't. And I don't mean to put you down if you're not. You might be somewhere that opportunity doesn't exist. But in you know Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, Jacksonville, Philadelphia, Atlanta, etc., it's not a big deal. We have waiters that make you know thirty, forty, fifty grand a year. In not the best, I mean, the waiters in really good places here, bartenders in really great good places here. You know, a Friday night's five hundred bucks to a thousand bucks. So you have people making that kind of money. I don't know that they're going to get lured 
into these other places. But even for them, if you, you know, if you think about our con uh, conversation with Nathan Lanier last week in the Northwest, pe people are living an hour and a half away from where they work just to be able to afford to buy a house. So in the next dropping of the foot in this cycle, I think it's very possible that we see a major move back out of the cities into these rural areas. And as I floated in that show with Nathan Lanier, I, I wonder when it's going to be the, the, the re return of the company town. And maybe a newer, kinder, gentler company town. I mean, right now, if I was Amazon, the hell with Dallas, the hell with Houston, the hell with you know Seattle. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you create Amazonville somewhere? I mean, really, as long as you're in a place where you can, you know, make things work from an air travel standpoint and access to freeway standpoint, you know, can't you just almost build a town in your own image now? I I, I think you'll see companies doing that, going to some of these little places and saying, hey, you know, we can actually completely create an economy in this place, and it's. Uh, It's going to be interesting. I don't know what's going to happen. That's not a Spirico Domus prediction there, guys. That's just a postulization that we could see something like that. Overall, I've said for years, I think the suburbs are going to die. And the way the suburbs die is when people leave the city. That's how suburbs die. The kind of places we're talking about generally don't have true suburbs. They're too small. We have developments, but not suburbs. We have suburbs here in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. We have places that, like... It's just houses, but you, you, it honestly should be its own little town. Like you, if you get, like I said, where you could see kind of the hills rise and fall, and you get some elevation, and you look, and you're like, holy crap! It's just houses almost touching each other as far as you could see. That's suburbs. And if you do get success, and I mean, think about it. There's a lot to be said for living in these smaller communities, especially as people get older. Well, the young workforce is the mobile workforce, and but what's driving them into the cities isn't just money right now. It's also amenities and things to do and stuff like that. But we're getting to a place in life where you know that's becoming very portable. That kind of you know like things people want to do and stuff. And yeah, Podunk, Iowa may not have a lot of cool stuff right now, but if they're willing to do this, they're probably willing to invest in things. To bring those cool things into it could be a major shift in demography across the United States, and it's all is coinciding with automation, where more and more of these jobs, in spite of the fact there's a labor shortage right now, are going to be gobbled up and go away. It's kind of a crazy time to be alive. Check out the rest of the article if you want to, but uh, I definitely thought this one was interesting. I wanted to share it with you. Next up today, I have uh, two questions from one guy, Jared. He says. What would you do with a one-quarter acre blank slate? By slate, I mean exposed dirt, Tennessee clay. And do you prefer to run aquaponics outdoors or in a controlled environment like a barn or garage? My wife and I are building a new home in a suburban subdivision. Isn't that interesting? And have lots of freedom in how to set it up. Restriction-wise, the only limit is the front yard has to be sodded with Bermuda grass. We can plant any trees and shrubs to landscape as we desire, and a small garden in the backyard are all good. Uh, we want to do some fruit and nut trees and berry shrubs. It's a pie-shaped lot with a very wide backyard. That sounds very familiar to me. That sounds like my place in Arkansas. Not Arkansas, I'm sorry, Ar Arlington. The lot is very flat, holds water pretty well. We are close to the TN Georgia-North Carolina border, Zone 7. The subdivision was cow pasture prior to development, and the natural seed bank has lots of wild garlic, some plantain, 
Uh, would you do any initial fertility treatments to the soil to get the lawn, landscape, and garden started well? Not expecting you to tell me how to design this, but I would love to hear your thoughts and perspective, Jared. Okay, let's start out with the aquaponics one because that's a short and easy one. Do I prefer to do aquaponics outdoors or in a controlled environment like a barn or a garage? Outdoors, 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 outdoors. I am not into spending money to provide the light that the sun gives us for free. That said, my ideal situation would be a much larger greenhouse that I have with a lower system than I have so I could lower the overall height of the grow beds because I think a greenhouse is about perfect for aquaponics. It extends the season. We can shade it in the hottest part of the summer. We can open doors. We can create ventilation. So that would be my ideal, but outdoors or in a greenhouse over indoors. However, I'm not faulting anybody's indoor systems. I'm not far out faulting anybody using artificial lighting. I'm just giving you my personal preference here. The only reason I did the indoor system in my barn last winter was one overwinter some tilapia because I had some really big fish and I didn't want to. I mean, I processed like 40 of them and I had about 40 more and I'm like, you know, those those 40 will give me plenty of fish until next fall for tilapia. I don't, we, you know, we maybe one meal every two weeks of tilapia, so uh, that's plenty for just two people. Um, And uh, we have plenty of other fish, and I'd like to see how big these things can really get. And so I decided to overwinter them. And so when I moved them in there, the only reason I built that system as elaborately as I've done, I've said this several times, was just to use the educational opportunity and get content for YouTube. Because it let me, since you know, I, I realized like when we built everything else, I never showed you, here's how a bell siphon works, here's how a down tube works, here's, you know, I, I never showed you the interiors. So I was like, I get an opportunity to do that here. If I were doing it again, I would probably throw a 50-gallon uh, Rubbermaid on top of a 100-gallon Rubbermaid, set the heater in there to keep them at about 60 degrees at the warmest, probably more like 58, because that they're just going to sit there and do nothing and make almost no waste, and throw some mint on it and call it good till the next spring. Uh, so I'm, I, I am personally not big on indoor growing. I have a long enough growing season. I don't need to. All right, your one-quarter blank slate lot. I think this is a really good opportunity for you to sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper and draw out a rough diagram and come at this from a permaculture perspective. And I would even recommend, you know, maybe going through a PDC before you really commit to anything here. Um, that might be quite beneficial. Um, I, I really don't feel like we have a good small-scale PDC analog, you know, an urban gardening permaculture design program. There's things like that, but I don't know that I, there's any that I would recommend, and that's something I've always felt was missing. Like, here is how we do a design in the suburbs. And there's a lot of good examples of it, but I don't know that there's a good path to being able to do it yourself. But you can start with a strictly zone perspective. First thing I'm going to say You're going to put in a garden. I think it's a fantastic idea. Put it close to the house. Assuming it doesn't destroy the ability of the kids to play with a ball or something like that, put it where at least when you look out the window, you're going to see it. Because you're going to be a lot more likely to spend your time there. Um, I would probably, in your situation, go with raised beds or doing a double-dig in-ground bed system with soil improvements for now, in the area that you're going to grow. You're, you, you know, you still have plenty of time to get a garden in this year if you're going to be moving in very soon. Um, and, and one way or the other, I would take that approach to your basic garden. 
you know, don't be afraid to take a year to think about things and figure out what you want to do. They're going to make you sod the front yard. That's fine. So then think about trees, bushes, shrubs, and stuff like that for the front lot. If, you're, if your property's a lot like mine and it sounds almost like a perfect description of mine uh, that I had in Arlington, then it may be very well the case that um, your front yard is actually very small. And if that's the case, like scale down your plantings, it would be better to have a large diversity of little things than one giant thing. So, you know, kind of doing the backyard orchard thing in the front yard with small trees, or I prefer either semi-dwarf to full-size rootstock and prune them small and maintain them as small trees uh, because I think you just get a much more vibrant, healthy plant when you do that. And, and kind of look at things like the old urban permaculture video and the urban permaculture DVD from Jeff Lawton. That's probably the closest thing to a course, and it's free, and it's available at, uh, at DTube. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes where you can find that as, as well. Um, but I, I really don't know what you should do because it's your property, and I don't know what you really want. I would say, like, if it's going to be something permanent or hard to change, think about it before you do it quite a bit. You know, I'm not talking about analysis paralysis here, but if it's a if it's a stone wall that you're going to mortar in, then you really should think about why you're doing it. Um, I have become, as you guys know over the years, a, a big fan of aquaponics, and I, I hear a lot of people that defend aquaponics that are doing you know aquaponics in places where you know they don't have a lot of place for a garden or something like that. So that's it's what I can do. So that's why I do. I don't think we should defend aquaponics that way. I think we should look at aquaponics as something amazing. Um, you may want to go straight into that environment. You got Georgia clay. That means you can get a stock tank and bury it, doesn't it? That means you can have a nice low point in your system. You know, so you could put in wicking beds and what have you. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to be easier. That, that, I mean, that's why people always, you know, there's a lot of criticism I heard about aquaponics, but usually about people that didn't do it or they did it wrong or they did it complicated for the wrong reason. I mean, we're talking about wicking beds. You know, about some koi or goldfish swimming around in a, a pump, pumping water to one end and it running back through a bunch of beds and dropping back in a tank. I mean, if you call that complicated, I, I feel bad for you when you try to send an email because it's not complicated. Um, and having, you know, one good ebb and flow bed in a system like that, it gives you a propagation bed. It gives you an ability to recycle your produce, all that good stuff. So I'd really think about, you know, fitting an aquaponics system into this. And I would think about doing it in a way that, If you were doing it for a customer, and your customer was the was a pain in the ass, yuppie housewife from the richest rich part of the suburbs just before you go to full-on Bruce Wayne Mansion, and you had to make her happy with the way it looked, how would you build it? So that if you ever decide to sell this place, that it's not like, do I need to pack this up and take it with me? The person that looks at it goes, oh my God, it's a beautiful water garden that produces food. And that's how I think we should be building, especially in the suburbs and especially in backyard systems, aquaponic systems. We should be building them so they look like water gardens. And aquaponics is just the underlying technological explanation for what's going on. What you really have is a water garden. And there's you know, a little bit of lumber and some cedar. And, I mean, what was a bunch of ugly tanks is a pretty planter box. You know, with a nice cap on it, it becomes a hangout where people sit and have a beer. I mean, so that, I, I would look at working that in if it was me. I would maybe not look at doing that this year. Uh, get your stuff done, just your basic stuff done, your trees in the ground and stuff like that, maybe a little garden established. You know, but maybe that's a good project for this fall. Because you're done with everything else for the year, 
and you can dedicate yourself to it and you can take your time with it. So those are some thoughts I have. I hope that helps you. Um, but uh, if you want to send me an outline of what the pro like a, a diagram of the property, maybe I'll come up with something. I'm not promising. I'm saying maybe if you send me like an overhead view of where the property lines all in are, I get some idea with solar aspect. Maybe I'll use it in a video as an example of here's how I would do this particular sur suburban design. Next one's I think kind of an interesting gun question. This comes from Dan in Maryland. He says, "Hey Jack, do you still hold the same opinion on high point guns you did in 2008?" I was listening to Rewind episode 74. You said they were a good entry-level brand for people with tight budgets. I'm paraphrasing. I'm looking to expand my collection beyond just a shotgun. I want to get a pistol and a rifle that are reliable and inexpensive. I don't care about brand loyalty. I just need it to work and on a budget. Someday when the kids are grown, I'll get something nice. But now I just want a rifle, a shotgun, and a handgun. I feel this is a good foundation for gun collection. Let's start out with the handguns. This is where I am least impressed with High Point. They're okay. They're incredibly bulky for what they are, and they are cheap, like $150. Bucks. And street price is sometimes much lower. And you can get them in, uh, in, in a variety of uh, very popular calibers. And, you know, they are what they are. I've heard people call them jam-o-matics. I've shot them. I have never had a problem with them jamming. I do worry a little bit about them as a self-defense weapon. Number one, they're just not going to carry well because they just don't because of the dimensions of them. But number two, um, part of the reason I don't think I've ever had a problem with high points jamming is I know how to shoot. And that means being in a locked position. And specifically with the type of um, action that the high points have, if you're limp-wristed, um, they can fail to function. If you are in a proper form, well, they function as reliably as anything I've shot, including the vaulted Glocks, which I don't like because I think they're ugly and they don't fit my hand well. I know you're going to tell me I'm wrong, but that's okay. We can have our own opinion about guns. Um, but in a self-defense situation, you may be in an odd position. You know, We don't always get to be there with our feet planted and our perfect weaver stance and shit like that, right? So it may be more likely to have a malfunction. Personally, I think I would look, if I wanted to keep my cost down for a handgun, I would look to companies like Keltec. Um, they have some really great innovative products, and uh, you, you know, they, they're, they are very affordable for what they offer type thing. They're not $150 guns, though. So on a, on a handgun, if you're going to use it to defend yourself or your family, I'm just not comfortable recommending the high point. I'm not you know, comfortable recommending a $150 gun. As I said probably in that podcast that many years ago, it's almost 10 years ago now, um, if, if it was a choice between having a high point in your nightstand next to your bed and having no gun at all, then okay. I, I, I would say yeah, but if you have any flexibility there um, – If you're planning on this thing being a defense tool, especially if you're going to carry it, look elsewhere. Uh, again, Caltech has some pretty cool offerings. If you just want a pistol to learn to shoot pistols with, you know, there's a lot of like single action 22 revolvers that sell for around $100, brand new, $130, bucks, something like that. And that has, to me, more appeal. Uh, it's a training tool. It's something that you'll value. You'll be glad you have it 20 years from now, that type of thing, uh, than, than a high point, uh, you know, as they call them, ghetto Glock. Uh, and the carbines. The carbines are better than they've ever been. I mean, and they really are. And high point keeps innovating and keeps making them better, including some things I didn't know. Uh, the carbines are now available uh, in 10 millimeter. 
which if I was going to buy a car, uh, high point carbine and add it to my collection, and I might, because I got rid of my old 995 many years ago, my own plain Jane ugly one, um, it would be the 10 millimeter. Because you've got a hell of a defense round. You've got a round that, while it has a pretty good snap to it, shooting it in a handgun, in a carbine, it's like nothing. There's just not any real recoil mitigation you need to do on that at all. The barrel's threaded, so if you ever want to spend a couple hundred bucks and get a tax stamp for it and get a suppressor for it, it's ready to go on that. The gun looks good now. I'm not going to say it's sexy looking, but it's pretty good looking gun now. They've made some changes. You know, a lot of guys were making their own parts for, for High Point. They had, you know, the, the High Point did a good job of recognizing the cult that they created around the 995 carbine and then, and then giving it everything that it wanted. You want one in 45? Hell yeah, we'll make it in 45. Oh, you're a High Point collector because our guns are cheap and you bought everything, including a 380, and you want it in 380. We don't know why that makes sense when you have a 9mm and a 40 and a matter, but you want one, we'll, we'll do that too. You want Picteni rails on it, we'll do that. You want the cheek weld to be better and pat, we'll do that. You want it dipped in real tree camo, uh, polymer, we'll do whatever you guys, if you'll buy it, we'll do it. And, uh, they have. And from my uh, research, the quality of performance has not dropped. I have never heard anyone complain about chronic problems in the high-point carbines. You will see someone that says, I have a problem with mine. Every gun in the world will have one that's a gremlin. What I found with high-point is you could go out to a gun show, and this is back in the butt-ugly days where all they pretty much had was the 9.95 and 9mm, and find one that was just trashed. And you could buy it for next to nothing. You could send it to High Point, and they'd either rebuild it or replace it. And, and I don't know that they're that heavy on their warranties now, but they're, they're still great. Um, I sent one in for service once. It came back with two magazines. I was grateful for them. I didn't ask for them. I didn't have a problem with mine. They just threw in two magazines when they sent my gun back to kind of apologize for the fact that I had a problem with it, which really was I bought one that was jacked up at a gun show and got them to fix it for me. Because I knew they would. I knew it wouldn't cost me any money. And, and I think they're just a stellar thing for what they are. I really can't tell you there's much that competes with them at their price point from their reliability standpoint, from their functionality standpoint. What will screw one up? There's people that make aftermarket magazines for them. I don't know if that problem has been solved, but as far as I know, it has not. It just hasn't. Um, the aftermarket magazines I tried in my old 995, I had two different ones, and both guns worked flawlessly with the factory magazines, and these were like higher capacity 15-round mags for them. I, they never worked right with them. And I found people trashing them as a, a junky gun, and you find out, well, I put a 15-round mag in it, it wouldn't work for your damn, you know, like, we'll put the factory mag back in it, that you bought a gun that's a 10-round magazine gun. I don't know why, and I don't know why no after, aftermarket people have come up with a way to do them right. I don't think they are the best carbine out there, but for the money, they're pretty damn good. Uh, and again, now, I mean, it's easy to put sights on them. Uh, it's easy to put some accessories on them. I think you can go too much mall ninja with them if you go too far. But I mean, I could see like a red dot or a low uh, magnification, fast handling scope on one of the 10 millimeters or the, the, the 45 or 40 Smith and Wesson, all would be decent hunting rounds, being a hell of a brush gun for, for deer and feral hogs and things like that, and just being a hoot to shoot. I mean, really. So I have a very high opinion of the carbines, as you can tell. Let's go on to another one. 
Last one is kind of an aquaponics question. Um, it says, what can I easily successfully grow on my pond floating style raft to gain experience and confidence, or maybe it's a bad idea? Located in Midwest Missouri in Zone 6A, the pond is roughly oval-shaped and about 30 yards by 20 yards. Deep end is 5 to 6 feet. Catfish, bullhead, bass, and couple koi all stock from previous owner. Does not freeze solid. The fish keep on surviving. I have no illusions of achieving any type of symbiotic balance between fish and plants. Typical Missouri mud pond with no aeration. I do not have power out at the pond, but it's about 300 yards from the house. Uh, I have don't have ducks and geese, but occasionally find a trespassing wild duck or sand crane out there. A floating raft can be placed in full sun or placed in cattails under the overhang of a tree to prevent direct sun and wind all day. I have family, full-time job, family that plays sports, etc. So I am looking for a low-maintenance approach. I don't have crazy expectations of production, but I just want to tinker with the idea of floating a raft, foster gardening interest that one of my boys has already uh, with our raised bed garden. Keep up the good work, Darren. I don't know. I don't know if you get some net cups, get some lettuce plants, and stick them in there and float a raft if you're going to have great luck or not. My instinct is you might have pretty good results, actually. Lettuce and some other loose greens are pretty low requirement from a nutrient standpoint. Again, we're back to another reason that commercial aquaponics growers use them, um, because you can grow so much in an aquaponic system with quick turnover using floating raft and leafy greens, and it's a high-dollar sale. Uh, you know, you're talking about crop a lot of times that from the time that plant goes in the water to it's in a clamshell going to a retail outlet, you know, 20 to 30 days. Uh, so even in those systems that do have a lot of nutrient, and there's a lot of production because each plant requires a small amount. So you could try it. I would be inclined to take a more aquatics approach, an aquaculture approach here, which is low maintenance. So one of the things you might do is you might just put in some, uh, find some big containers, uh, weigh them down with some rock, set a couple center blocks in your pond so you have a platform, and maybe set them up on top of there and then fill them with soil. Now you basically have a wicking bed. And if you have plants that maybe do well on water and in soil both, like Thai water spinach, which the state of Missouri says you're probably not supposed to grow, but if they don't know, it won't hurt them, and it's very awesome awesome plant um they would do really well in that they would do well just planted in your soil on the edge of the pond and then trained out onto the water and yeah it can get kind of out of hand but it's nothing you can't handle with a rake to harvest it and get get rid of any excess and they ain't gonna survive a missouri winter because they don't even survive a, a texas winter so i don't see them as being an invasive threat and that's why your state may not consider them to be an evil banned plant uh, things like that water chestnut, you could probably just get some water chestnut crumbs. crumbs. Go to an Asian market, buy fresh, alive water chestnuts, and just stick them in the mud in the soil. You can grow taro. Um, there's another plant that I'm playing with this year. I don't remember the scientific name for it, but it's, it's referred to as Korean water celery. It's also referred to as Korean water cress. It is not water cress. Uh, it is very celery-like in appearance, but it has a flavor like wasabi if wasabi wasn't hot, is the best way I can describe it. There's no heat to it, but you eat it and you're like, what? It, I know that flavor. I, that's horseradish. It tastes like wasabi without the pungent heat. 
So that would be a, you know, a plant you could look at. All those types of things. I would look at what can you grow in the system as it is instead of trying to fit aquaponics into that system. You know, if you had power out there, I would say consider putting a pump in there and running them through wicking beds. I know you say you're busy, but long term, maybe you plan that. Maybe you plan setting in some, some grow beds out there, and then you get a pump and set up a little 100 watts of Stephen Harris solar power and a battery and run that pump for 15 minutes at a time six times a day because it's a wicking bed. Now, I know that's probably beyond what you want to do right now, but if you wanted to start using some kind of aquaponics-type technology in that pond, I think that type of system would be really good. The negative is it's 300 yards from the house, right? And that's why I really don't even like the idea of floating greens because they grow so fast if they grow, unless you're going to be out there often, you're going to end up growing food for the animals of the pond. And those wild ducks that show up, they're going to eat your lettuce, Uh, you're going to be much more likely to be able to get some of these other things to do well for you. So that those are just my thoughts. But don't let it dissuade you. I mean, you're talking about a piece of foam board and some net pots and some uh, lettuce plants. Give it a shot. Let us know what happens. But, you know, don't have huge expectations of it. And do consider other more aquaculture-type things because you have an cr incredible opportunity to do that uh, where you're at. I'm, I'm a little jealous, I have to say. And that brings us to the end of another show. Let me remind you one of the ways you can support the Survival Podcast is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I don't have a featured item of the day for you today uh, reviewed, but I have tons of reviews there. And remember, if it's at tspaz.com, I own it, I use it, or I wouldn't recommend it. Pretty much, when it comes to making recommendations, with a few exceptions of things I just don't need but you guys ask about, If I haven't spent my money on it, I'm not going to recommend that you spend your money on it. And that's really a service I try to provide to you guys through tspaz.com. Remember, whenever you're going to shop online, you can find all my reviews at everything Amazon at tspaz.com. Uh, next up today, reminds you that the other way you can support us is by becoming a member of the support brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about that. And let's get into our song of the day. Our song of the day is a really interesting one. And I've always considered myself to be a fan of sticks, and this is going to be six weeks, uh, five days of sticks in a row. And uh, I've always considered myself a fan of sticks, but I, I just don't remember this song. I may have heard it, but I don't remember it. It's called Sweet Madam Blue. And here's what Dennis DeYoung wrote about this. Uh, he said, uh, this is in 1975 as America is gearing up for the bicentennial celebration in 76. The song is not a celebration of the event, but a look at how it was being exploited, he explained in Classic Rock Revisited. The 200th anniversary of America was being totally taken over by commercialization in a rather unceremonious fashion. I had a moment of reflection. I had grown up in the so-called glory days of the United States of America, which was post-World War II until about 1970. To live in this country at that time was really the golden age. The fability of the United States was something that struck me, and I think that set in the tone for Sweet Madam Blue. Maybe I was fearful of being literal. I think I probably was. And uh, <clears throat> this is a really thought-provoking song. Um, let me give you some of the lines to it. Time after time I sit and I wait for your call. I know I'm a fool, But why can I say, whatever the price, I'll pay for you, Madam Blue. Once long ago, a word from your lips 
and the world turned around, but somehow you've changed. You're so far away. I long for the past and dream of the days with you, Madam Blue. Sweet Madam Blue, gaze in your looking glass. You're not a child anymore. Sweet Madam Blue, the future is all but past. Dressed in your jewels, you made your own rules. You conquered the world and more. Heaven's door, oh. Red, white, and blue, gaze into your looking glass. You're not a child anymore. Red, white, and blue, the future is all but past. So lift up your heart and make a new start and lead us away from here. There's a whole bunch of America, 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 and a chorus line in here uh, as well that I skipped over because you don't need to hear me just say one word over and over again. I, I, I wonder if almost every young person grows up thinking the way that Dennis DeYoung did. Because he says that, you know, kind of those glory days ended in 1970, and I think of growing up in the 80s and feeling this way about America, the greatest country in the world. And maybe it's just some of our youthful naivety that some of the brainwashing and the systemic programming wears off that we realize we're not perfect. And I think one of the greatest sins in our country is that, you know, from a, a, a public standpoint, you can't say anything bad about us without being attacked. I don't think to say that a country isn't perfect or to point out a country's faults is to be unpatriotic or to not love your country. I think it's actually very patriotic to be willing to say, these are things we don't do well and we should do better. These are things we're doing now that we should stop doing. I think that's highly patriotic because it's realist. It's a realist viewpoint. No nation has ever been perfect And the whole greatest nation argument, let's just say that we are. Okay, let's just say that we are the greatest nation that's ever existed. That doesn't mean we're perfect. And that doesn't mean we should stop trying to be better. That's what this song says to me. I hope you enjoy it. When you hear the first lines out of it, you'll be like, yeah, that sticks. It couldn't be anybody else. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I sit and I wait for your call I know I'm a fool But what can I say Whatever the price I'll pay For you Madam Blue Once Long ago A word from your lips And the world Turned around But somehow you've changed Your So far away I long for the past And dream of the days With you Madame Blue
heaven's door.